as African Americans moved from the old inequality to the new inequality, in order to continue the struggle to get free, we have to understand the conditionality that we are in at this particular moment in time, to understand those, those contradictions. And I think that race for profit clarifies many of the issues and the challenges that we face. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, and welcome to the newest event from Haymarket Live. Um, I first have a shameless plug. I am told that we are about 50 people away from having 30,000 subscribers on our channel, so we'd love you to like, share, and subscribe. Um, I am Julie Fain, the co-founder and publisher here at Haymarket. Excited to have you all with us. Uh, we are thrilled, and I am doubly thrilled as her friend, to celebrate the release of the paperback edition of Kianga Yamada Taylor's critical book, Race for Profit. This is such an important book. It's received all the praise it deserves, including being longlisted for a National Book Award, and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. You may also know Kianga from her frequent work as a contributor to The New Yorker, and she has just been promoted to full professor of African-American studies at Princeton University. Plug here to um, buy Kianga's book. There's a link in the chat, or there will be, to purchase directly from University of North Carolina Press, um, which helps them continue to publish important books like this one. We're also honored to have Henry Taylor with us, an award-winning scholar of housing and race at the University of Buffalo, a full professor in the Department of Urban and Regional Planning, and founding director of the University of Buffalo Center for Urban Studies, who is also Kianga's proud father, which makes this, I think, the first Haymarket Live to be a family affair. <laughs> So happy to have you both here in conversation. I'm so interested in the connections between your scholarship, and I'm looking forward to hearing you discuss each other's work. Um, moving past the one-year mark of this pandemic, I think that we are racing pretty quickly um, toward what could be a catastrophic housing and rent crisis here in the U.S., um, which is a huge challenge to those of us who are organizers and activists. I'm going to let Henry take the lead in the discussion by asking some questions, giving um, a brief intro, and hopefully we'll have some time for more questions from um, those who are watching. Uh, if you would like to ask something of either of our speakers, please put your question in the chat and in the chat on YouTube, and we will get to as many as we can. So without any more delay, over to you, Henry. Well, thank you very much, uh, Julie. And it's a uh... Tremendous pleasure to be here and uh, to have this conversation with Kianga. 
I, I thought it would be good to just start off with my own views in terms of the uh, significance of, of this particular book. There are many books on housing, racial, residential segregation, and the Black urban experience. However, Kianga Yamada Taylor's Race for Profit stands out for its meticulous historical examination of a decisive period in Black urban history and critique of the landmark 1968 Housing and Urban Development Act. The book forces us to rethink the ethics and value of using public-private partnerships to contend with African-Americans' hydra-headed socioeconomic challenges and questions the assumption that the private sector's genius is most capable of ending the persistent urban housing crisis. She makes a case for reconsidering this paradigm with her exposure of the unscrupulous and exploitive practices of the banking and real estate industries in the 1968 Act. The, the issue was not only the inhumanity of realtors selling dilapidated and dangerous houses to poor black women with children, but it was also troubling how casually these profiteers ran roughshod over the economic woes and social needs of African-Americans, which suggests that the public welfare and the private sector's profit-making goals are incompatible. Race for Profit argues that the Hud Act disaster also reflected the failure of racial liberalism and its premise that inclusion in American democracy could produce fairness and equality for its black citizens. The liberal notion that exclusion from normalizing white institutions caused black socioeconomic hardships undergirded the HUD Act's housing programs. If racist exclusion was the root cause of black problems, then inclusion became the logical antidote. However, inclusion disregarded racism and left the racist practices of the American normalizing institutions intact and never challenged the real estate industry's long history of racial discrimination and demonization of blacks as unfit owners and detrimental to property values. Consequently, Racial exclusion eventually gave way to predatory inclusion. In, in making these arguments, race for profit centers residential segregation, but tethers it to the land valuation system, the profitability of the real estate industry, and maintaining the racial purity of suburbia. The land valuation system tied residential land value to black proximity. Therefore, property values and the wealth producing capacities of neighborhoods grew as the percentage of whites in social class exclusivity increased. Thus, the social construction of land value depended on the racial and social class exclusivity of white neighborhoods and property devaluation in black neighborhoods. 
Kianga says this political economy of segregation explains why the real estate profits were tied to racial residential segregation and why the federal government refused to aggressively enforce the Fair Housing Act and retreated from building low-income housing for Black buyers and renters. This tethering of land values and racial residential segregation situates the Black struggle for housing and neighborhoods in a metropolitan context and places the battle to unlock the suburbs at its core. Most urban histories structure the narratives of Black struggle within a central city context, but Kianga moves in a different direction. She posits that Blacks could not solve their social, housing, and neighborhood problems without access to the entire metropolitan housing market. However, the public-private partnership trapped them in inner cities with limited housing options, where they became easy prey to the corrupt and unprincipled actions of property appraisers, realtors, mortgage bankers, and others connected with the housing transaction chain, stuck in neighborhoods with development arrested. The socioeconomic problems plaguing the Black community endured becoming increasingly complex and difficult to solve with the passage of time. In conclusion, race for profit provides critical insight into the current challenges of African-Americans by showing how Richard Nixon used the HUD Act disaster to complete the transmutation of old Black inequality into no Black inequality. Nixon blamed African-Americans for low-income home ownership debacle and stigmatized them as the welfare poor. He then forced the United States to take a neoliberal turn and conjured up the new federalism to reconstruct the government, revise states' rights, redesign social welfare programs, and void the social contract while simultaneously embracing colorblind racism to make white supremacy palatable, stealthy, and even more insidious. Race for Profit provides deep insight into a pivotal moment in Black urban history, while also making it possible to understand African-Americans' present dilemmas and gain perspective into their future. Thanks. Uh, those are my opening remarks <laughs> <laughs> and my kind of thoughts about uh, <laughs> uh, the book. I have to say, um, for those who don't know, my father was an aspiring actor before he became an, a historian. Um, but thank you for that. I, I actually, I've, I've have found in the um, several conversations that we've had uh, about this book, both in, I mean, the its formative stage is one thing, but as as an actual book that I. You are the the closest reader of this book and actually understand how all uh, the different threads um, tie together because the you know race for profit is doing um, several trying to do several things at at one time and address several arguments at one time and I think that um, for many of the 
reviewers and um, you know people that I've been in conversation with about the book. Uh, you know, people usually grasp onto uh, at least a couple of the themes that um, I try to uh, bring to the surface in the book. Um, but I find you know consistently that uh, you know, and it's probably because this work intersects and overlaps with your own uh that you are able to see like the uh the different strains um uh many of them and pull them together coherently so that was actually quite enjoyable to listen to (laughs) (laughs) oh yes yes that is what that book is doing yeah that's great one of the things that 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 happened when i wrapped your, your 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 book um, and I was excited about it because, as you say, it, it, it dovetail so much into the work that, that I do. I mean, it's crazy that uh, we would be engaged in both the, the same kind of work, but also ideologically see the world in, in, in pretty much the same way. So when I started getting into the book, there were places that bothered me at first. Uh, because I didn't really understand. And, and the big issue was racial segregation. Um, for a lot of reasons, and, and we've talked about this before, for me, initially, racial segregation uh, and the emphasis that people placed on it was something that um, I kind of pushed away. And I, I pushed it away for a couple of reasons. One, the way it was often pitched, it made it appear as if um, black institutions were inferior, that there was something wrong with black space, and that the solution was to be snuggling up to white people in white space. And while breaking the bonds of segregation and all of the things that were there were right and suspected, I'd always looked almost in a nationalist way of the importance of building that community up. The second part was a recognition that Blacks did not own the land, the housing, or control the institutions in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. And, And so to me, racial segregation was a factor but the key to dealing with it was, was the development of our communities and fighting to dissemble the, 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 the capitalist system that was responsible for producing it. So when I counted your book and racial segregation is centered, I said, okay, let me see how to deal with this. And I've had a philosophy, I don't think I've ever talked to you about it, but since you were 12 years old, I had this philosophy that anything that you said, before I thought about it and responded to it, I would think about it, try to understand it as deeply as I possibly could. And then once I figured it out, I would chat or talk to you about whatever it might be. So I did that with with. The racial segregation piece. It would have been good to let me know this when I was 12 years old. But anyway, <laughs> can I ask 
carry on. Well, I'll tell you about the conversation. I remember it, but that's all another story. But that was when I instituted the, the, mm-hmm. the principle. I think I had said something to you, and I said it passionately, and you said to me, don't holler at me, Dad. Oh, yeah, and I then, think I actually remember that, Earl. And then I re- it was over an issue, and I had misunderstood the issue. And that was when I made up my mind I would always do that. But the discussion of racial segregation carried, carries you to the land valuation issue. It carries you to the failure of the partnership. It carries you to understanding all of the other dilemmas and dynamics. And so that was one issue. The, the other issue centered around just the power I found in the ideas and their applications to many things in the world today. And it kind of raised a question to me. I mean, the HUD Act in, in 1968 was so important, so significant, and yet it was forgotten. Why did that happen? That something so real, something so important, something so central gets pushed aside. I mean, right now, if you Google HUD 1968, Literally everything that pops up is on fair housing. It's the Fair Housing Act? Yeah. We're in urban planning in the department. I'll ask my students, how many of you have heard of the HUD Act? No hands go up. How many of you have heard of the Fair Housing Act? Every hand goes up. So, so the question is, how can something so critical and important get forgotten about? Uh, Well, first, I'll just say what it is. Um, The 1968 Housing and Urban Development Act, uh, which is really the the focal point of my book, um, was an omnibus bill. It was a huge bill um, that uh, really represented a revolution um, in uh, American housing policy. Um, so for the first time in U.S., in a truncated U.S. history, because the U.S. government didn't actually um, begin to uh, put together a kind of federal national uh, housing policies until the 1930s in the first place. Um, but as most most people know, and what has become, you know, a, a thread through the kind of public discussions about um, housing policy in the last 10 years is that federal policies um, uh, excluded, uh, black people from, uh, these measures created in the thirties to make home ownership accessible and easy to the vast majority uh, of the population, but, um, mostly to white people and mostly for homes that would, uh, eventually be built in the, in the suburbs. Uh, so the HUD Act, you know, in, in many ways was a corrective to, um, what got left out in 1934, the 1934 um, Housing Act. Uh, so 34 years later, there is an effort to uh, create programs that um, would allow for low-income Black people living in cities uh, to to become homeowners. Um, and so, of course, the, the policy wasn't written, this is for Black people to become homeowners, but um, it was directed at uh, low-income urbanites, uh, including people on welfare, uh, people who were in areas that were described as um, riot-torn, 
Uh, and so, you know, this policy really develops out of uh, two streams. One is the most immediate uh, is the backdrop of urban rebellions um, on a scale that was unprecedented um, in American history. Uh, right, you know, the year prior. So this bill is signed into law in August of 1968, uh, a year, you know, uh, earlier. Uh, were the most destructive uh, uprisings in American history in uh, Detroit and uh, Newark, New Jersey. Um, and so, you know, that was the kind of immediate context. The larger context was that uh, both, you know, realtors and um, uh, people who worked in government uh, understood that as white people were being either lured uh, out to the suburbs or blockbusted out, uh, to the suburbs, meaning they were, you know, being frightened by, uh, real estate speculators that the quote unquote blacks were coming and that their homes would lose value unless they sold them immediately. Uh, so both factors kind of underwrote the out migration of, of white people. Um, but that that opened up new market possibilities for, um, for uh, a new housing market in the in the city that catered to uh, black people because it meant that the housing that the the homes that were being left uh, would be you know available for a burgeoning black middle class to um, uh, to move into because through the course of the migration black incomes were uh, rising um, you know and and African Americans there was a top down pressure. Uh, from, uh, African Americans, uh, also that, you know, part of being a citizen in this country is being a homeowner. So we want, we want to do that too. So the NAACP, the Urban League, um, middle class black people are agitating for home ownership. So the HUD Act really comes at the convergence of those two, uh, factors, the kind of pressure from African Americans. Um, a realization from the real estate industry and then motored, uh, turned into an urgent matter, um, by black rebellions. I think specifically to your question, why no one knows about this, I think is, it's because it's largely, uh, considered to have been a failure. Um, the, the core programs of the HUD Act, um, which are centered on uh, the creation of low-income homeowners and low-income uh, homeownership um, kind of unravels uh, in corruption, fraud, uh, very public scandals uh, in the early 1970s. And I think that the history of these programs and of this unprecedented uh, government intervention is rewritten as a failed attempt at social engineering um, by an overburdensome uh, federal government. Uh, and so this is certainly how conservatives explain uh, the crisis that erupts around this program um, in the in the 1970s. This is how they explain uh, the program. And it's certainly then uh, reemphasized um, during the Reagan administration. They actually have a, a commission on housing um, in 1982, uh, that is been impaneled by, uh, Reagan to talk about the housing market and how to 
uh, deal with this perpetual sense of crisis um, in U.S. housing. And uh, the conclusion of this Reagan-led uh, commission is that the, the beginning of the, the troubles experienced in U.S. housing start with the 1968 um, Housing and Urban Development Act and that uh, its imprint, its influence uh, needs to be upended, undermined and gotten rid of. And so I think, you know, that this particular program um, is dismissed uh, along with uh, other aspects of the Johnsonian uh, welfare state um, as big government run amok, uh, as failed social engineering and as a mistake that we should never uh, engage with again. Yeah, it's it's interesting you know, along that, that that varying and the disappearing of history and the ways in, in which uh, African Americans were, were were demonized as 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 a part of that process. I'm really struck by the fact that out of all of the the kind of uh, actions and hostilities and other things that that take place during this particular moment of time and, and, and in regard to the, to the program, that the, the, the fundamental essence of it, in the sense of the public-private partnership, and the idea that the, the genius of the private sector has this capacity to continue to produce housing for low-income populations and groups, comes out of this unscathed. And, and today, the, the, the same public-private partnership that, that you have shown in, in, in the book is unworkable, is still the star of the show, still the, the lead, still the, the hero or shero, however you want to put it, even to a, a point that in our program, we are establishing a real estate uh, sector designed to produce entrepreneurs that would create these uh, uh, housing for low-income and moderate-income groups. Given that, that reality, what were the implications, in your view, uh, of the fact that the, the partnership, public-private, and its significance remains intact and continues to derive uh, uh, the production of housing in, in the African-American and low-income communities, and that the private sector and the public-private partnership continues to be pitched as the way we solve urgent social uh, mm -hmm problems inside of the, the, the country, the implications in your view of the survival of, of this kind of paradigm uh, that, that you critique in, in the book? Yeah, I think, you know, the, I mean, that's a great question. I, I just think that in the kind of immediate unfolding of the crisis, surrounding these programs. And so what, what was the crisis? So, you know, the, the HUD Act creates these low-income homeownership uh, programs, but they do so with almost no federal 
uh, oversight. It's a program that is facilitated almost exclusively by private sector uh, actors. So if you are a you know black woman um, on welfare and are uh, looking for a place to live, uh, you may be directed um, by a landlord who also owns property uh, that, you know, well, I, I don't want to rent to someone on welfare, but there's this new program that allows welfare mothers to buy homes. I happen to, you know, have a couple of properties. Um, would you like to look into buying a home? Um, and so she says, yes. Uh, then the uh, landlord now transforms himself into a realtor. And then uh, he is responsible for then putting her in touch uh, with a, a lender, uh, with a mortgage broker, um, who then uh, consults with someone from HUD, or from HUD, FHA, which is now a subsidiary uh, of HUD, and says, does this woman qualify uh, for a section, you know, 221D4 uh, or 235 uh, home loan. And so that the FHA official and the lender make a determination as to whether or not she qualifies uh, for this loan. And then it may or may not go forward. But at no point in time has the person who is the potential homeowner interfaced or interacted with any public official, uh, with any, you know, uh, person in the federal government who might have some connection to this program. So this opened the floodgates to uh, all kinds of um, fraudulent um, activity, uh, because what you have in uh, urban areas are properties that have been degraded, are in poor condition, because of the previous 34-year history of public policy exclusion uh, that was built into the policy in 1934. And so these homes are older. Uh, they have been uh, oftentimes uh, have had experienced overcrowding. Um, they're in communities that have been disinvested uh, from, so there are few jobs, all of these things. Uh, and so you had then opened up um, uh, the floodgates for real estate speculators to come in to purchase properties that in some cases were, uh, you know, were on the verge of being condemned to do cosmetic repairs and then to find buyers, people who are desperate for uh, housing. And then you have FHA appraisers who are willing to take bribes uh, to inflate the value uh, of the homes. Uh, and then mortgage lenders, mortgage uh, uh, from mortgage bankers um, who are willing to lend because there's no um, penalty if the person defaults on the loan. Uh, part of this federal program means that the federal government will step in um, and pay the loan off. So the only person who is incurring any risk in this is the homeowner. So this is a, a, a program um, that, uh, you know, by the early 1970s, there are all these public um, uh, hearings, um, congressional hearings into issues of fraud and impropriety 
Um, by 1974, uh, hundreds of FHA uh, officials have been indicted uh, for fraud and corruption. Um, hundreds of real estate speculators um, have been indicted. Uh, mortgage bankers have been indicted. Uh, and yet, in congressional hearings uh, at this time, the focus is on what is happening with Black women uh, who make up a disproportionate number of the participants in uh, the urban uh, uh, component of this uh, program. And so you have these hearings where uh, white congressmen uh, and also uh, Secretary of HUD, um, uh, George Romney, father of Mitt, um, you know, interrogating um, black women about their housekeeping skills, uh, making assumptions about the um, homekeeping abilities of, of black women, uh, talking about the rigors of home ownership uh, and how these people just seemed overmatched um, for, for that responsibility. And so I think that even as hundreds of private sector actors are being indicted for fraud, for corruption, for illegal activities, there's almost no focus on um, their function, their centrality to the unraveling uh, of this program. Instead, the entire focus becomes uh, uh, zeroed in on the program uh, participants. And I think that legacy, where the, the role of the, the private sector, the destructive role of the private sector, um, gets minimized, marginalized, and then becomes completely lost uh, to history. And instead, we're left with this legacy of Black people can't handle the rigors of home ownership. Black people uh, are, are, are poor neighbors. Uh, black people have a detrimental impact um, in, in communities, which is why, of course, uh, they should be segregated, which is why, of course, we don't want Black people as neighbors. And so that becomes... The, the, the legacy, because that is what was focused on. Uh, newspapers repeated over and over again, and I uh, titled one of the chapters of my book this. They, they described Black women in particular as unsophisticated buyers. Um, and so the, the problems in these programs get chalked up to the lack of sophistication uh, of Black uh, women and not the sophisticated efforts to undermine uh, them to the sophisticated efforts to engage in fraud, the sophisticated efforts to conspire um, against working class black people in these communities. Because that is a conspiracy when you have FHA people agreeing, taking bribes to inflate the value uh, of a house, and then the bank agreeing uh, to lend the money for that inflated uh, cost of the house. And then the real estate uh, uh, person, they're, they're all in it together. And that's not hearsay. That's not an urban legend. That's what the indictment said, right? But no one wants to talk about that. Instead, they want to talk about social engineering, government programs that, you know, have trying to do too much with this, this population. Um, and, you know, do Black women know how to uh, clean their houses properly? HUD produces, and I, I have a... A photo of this in the, the book, HUD produces a pamphlet explaining to the 
uh, inhabitants of public housing how you clean a house, right? And all of these white congressmen who are engaging in this ridiculous conversation know how black women clean houses because they've got black women cleaning their houses. But somehow black women only know how to clean other people's houses and not their own. And so that that's that history of the complicity of private sector actors in this has gotten completely lost. And all we're left with uh, is the scapegoating of black women. Yeah, it, it, it seems to me, I mean, before I mention that, that, that sometimes people, because of the levels of corruption, they, they talk about one bad apple. Mm. But, and it's this one bad apple that kind of messed everything up. But in, in your book is a chain. Yes. Everybody's getting in on the action. They even hired social workers to, to help. Uh, and, and so everybody was, was involved. So it sounded like not just one bad apple, but the entire system was a bad apple, which, which poses this question to me. Um, you talk about liberalism. Mm -hmm being a, an issue. And it, it boiled down to this uh, really amazing discussion around the relationship between exclusion and inclusion. And you suggest that one of the fatal flaws in this program right from the very beginning centered around the, the reality that it was based on this concept of this liberal concept of exclusion. And in this liberal concept of, of exclusion, the problems and difficulties facing African-Americans stem exclusively from the fact that they were excluded from the normalizing institutions that govern whites. And that uh, uh, the antidote to this, the, the way you resolve and solve this problem was through inclusion. But the inclusion doesn't recognize the, the flaws within that system, does not recognize the deep structural dimensions of racism. And in fact, it's a kind of inclusion that to work has to have exclusion elements tied to it. Mm -hmm. the, the question is, did this contradiction between what inclusion was supposed to mean and the realization that inclusion as it had functioned for white people were being distorted by racism so that the same tools that you use for them because of the, the, the racialized nature of the society would not work for blacks. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, you're caught in a situation. Do I say the system is flawed and we need to fix it and change America? Or do I say, there's a boogeyman that messed it up. We got to go after the boogeyman. The boogeyman doesn't know how to operate in the house. 
does that factor in in this amazing decision to blame black people mm-hmm. for something that white people did? They 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 were the criminals. They were the ones indicted. They were the ones going to jail or being on probation. Mm-hmm. And the list was long. Does what? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, capture the. Do I criticize the system, or do I criticize the people who were participating in a flawed, systemically racist system? So, you know, I write a lot in the book about uh, people that I describe as racial liberals. Um, meaning that these are uh, people, be they Republicans or Democrats, uh, who believe that racism is real, that, you know, it's not just uh, this thing that Black people um, are making up, um, but that the exclusion from black pe- of Black people from uh, the various institutions, the governing institutions, economic institutions of the United States um, is the reason for these folks. Uh, it's, that is the, how we can explain black inequality. And that's how we can explain black poverty, uh, black social marginalization. Um, in essence, these are people who believe that the United States is a great country that is filled with opportunities and promises. It's a country where, uh, you know, you can go from rags to riches, that there is social mobility, but black people have been excluded from that. And so if we just include them uh, in these institutions, if we just give them these opportunities, uh, then those measures that have created a white middle class will have the same impact um, on African-Americans. And this is, you know, this is genuinely what uh, these people believe. George Romney, uh, who is the Republican governor of Michigan, uh, was a a racial liberal who believed that racism and racial discrimination was real, was harmful, should be rooted out, um, and that we would see, you know, black people uh, flower under these uh, conditions. Of course, the problem with this is is that uh, it sees ultimately uh, that there is is something uh, wrong with African Americans that they need to assimilate uh, into um, American society in order to be uh, uh, successful. I mean, that's part of it. Um, but as you say, the the other big part of it is the assumption um, that uh, if you open up these these same kinds of uh, opportunities for African Americans, that they would function in the same way. And this housing program is a is a you know perfect example of uh, why it wouldn't work in the same way. So in 1934, when um, uh, the the Housing Act is first created. Uh, by 1940, when you really start to get the production of housing uh, underway in a dramatic way, interest rates are at historic low. Uh, the FHA program requires that uh, new housing be built in outlying suburban uh, uh, areas. This HUD program 
starts in 1968 when interest rates are about to become historically high. Um, the housing that is open and available to Black people uh, are not new buildings uh, on the periphery of the city, uh, but they're old buildings and in the heart of the city. So in St. Louis, for example, uh, the average age of uh, the dwellings um, in Black majority neighborhoods was between 70 and 80 years old. And so, you know, this is this is home ownership on different terms, right? This is what I describe as uh, predatory um, inclusion, that that history of racial discrimination is now uh, sort of rewritten as risk, right? As the, the conditions in black neighborhoods are risky. So now we're not treating you differently as a consumer uh, because you're black. You know, we're not redlining you on the basis of race, but we will ask for uh, more fees. We will ask for different kinds of higher payments because of the condition uh, of these these neighborhoods. So those conditions that are created by racism then become the the the, the basis for uh, treating black consumers uh, uh, differently. And so that you know. Those systems would not work in the same way for black people that they worked for white people. Um, and this, you know, this is just one of the uh, the problems with this idea of um, we just need to assimilate African-Americans into uh, the normalizing institutions that uh, created a white middle class. That, that kind of brings me to uh, an issue or that to me lies at the, the, the very center of the, the book. And one of the reasons that I refer to race for profits as the missing link. And by missing link, I, I'm saying that there are all kinds of really wonderful books out there that deals with racial segregation, that deals with black urban history, uh, that deals with all of the challenges that we, 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 we face. But I think the level of racial segregation that you talk about raises, synthesizes all of those things and, and make them rigid. Specifically, I'm talking about the place of land valuation and its connection to racial segregation. Unlike most of the pieces on racial residential segregation that I'm aware of, you tether the land valuation system and the profitability of the real estate industry to the necessity of creating racial residential segregation. You argue that the whole devaluation of black space is necessary for the valuation of white space. And, and that Babcock's construction, social construction of land value was 
connected to proximity to blackness mm -hmm. so that black people did in fact drop those values because they're living in these places were part of that. The, the other part of that scenario is that with the current system that was put into place, that the political economy necessitated the trapping of blacks in these spaces. And with these limited options in a place driven by capitalism, that was going to be predatory activities. You, you, you center it around housing, but there were all kinds of additional multipliers to that at every level that was predatory activities. So we were caught in a system, it seems to me, where to maintain the system, they couldn't do what they wanted to do build low-income housing in the suburbs, uh, mm -hmm. uh, enforce Fair Housing Act, even though they had all of the power and the authority to do it. Yielding mm -hmm. the land valuation system to racial residential segregation, and not just to segregation, but the very way value is produced meant that structurally the black wealth gap and the white wealth gap could never be closed mm -hmm. because the white wealth gap was built on the fact that blacks had no gap. Mm -hmm. How did you make that leap that way between the, the land valuation system and residential segregation. I'm saying that because I've studied the land valuation system and even though I knew it, even though I understood it and looked at it over and over again, I knew something was missing, but I couldn't find it. You found it. <laughs> I mean, I th I think, and I know we're we're running short on time here, but I'll, I'll just say, get the book, um, because it, it's, a, it's a long argument. But, you know, I think that for me, it kind of became clear when, you know, part of my uh, new research in, in this book, and new for me, it was not uh, a part of my dissertation research, um, but uh, it was research that I undertook when I was doing the revision of the book. Um, I, I sort of realized that, you know, there's this intervention of life insurance companies in the, you know, late 1960s, um, who the 300 largest um, insurance companies in the United States get together and create a $2 billion pool, uh, uh, mortgage pool. Uh, so essentially, they all chip in uh, to create a pool of money that black people in cities can borrow from to buy their own homes. In many ways, it, it's a kind of predecessor uh, to the low-income homeownership programs that would come about in the 68 HUD Act. So this is in 1967. And with that money, uh, which Johnson was very grateful for, and then Nixon, it was $1 billion in 68, uh, in 67, then it was another billion dollars in 69. They were very grateful uh, for the insurance companies for doing this. 
and it they allowed the insurance companies to do it on their own terms, um, meaning that uh, it would not they would not do below market interest rates. So they wanted six percent um, on these loans, and that they would be impervious to HUD's uh, they would be impervious to uh, to HUD civil rights rules. And so for the real the the um, life insurance companies. They were said, you know, anybody in the the inner city, the urban core, take these loans, become homeowners. But you cannot take one of these loans and buy a house in the suburbs. We are okay with you being homeowners as long as it's on a segregated basis. And so for me, and it was the same thing with FHA officials in the 1950s, the 1954 um, Housing Act is a caveat that you know that allows for it's an experimental home ownership program that is directed at black people who are going to be displaced by urban renewal you can buy a home as long as it stays in a black neighborhood and so their logic is that well we don't want we want you to be homeowners because there's this housing that exists uh, and there's a market to be exploited here but we don't want you to spoil the white housing market um, because that is the 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 gold the the goldstone. And I think that the logic surrounding that still pervades. I wanted to read this quick thing. It's one sentence. This is from a Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper article today that talks about this crisis in appraising where black homes are being appraised and undervalued. Uh, homes in black majority neighborhoods are on average undervalued by $43,000 in comparison to homes in white majority uh, neighborhoods. And in this article, it says, uh, it quotes an expert, a home buyer looking for a three bedroom row house would expect to pay different prices in Chestnut Hill versus Mount Airy versus Oxford Circle, for example, because of differences in neighborhood makeup and amenities. And so I know I live in Mount Airy in, um, in Philadelphia and Chestnut Hill is, you know, set of course by a train track and there is nothing physically different about the housing in my neighborhood, which is 70% black. I live in East Mount Airy compared to Chestnut Hill, which is 68% black. The only, or 68% white, the only difference when they talk about amenities, it's the same neighborhood separated by a train track. The difference is that Chestnut Hill is 68% um, white, which means it has a higher income and, and all this. And so this assumption, and this is written, this is said by someone who is sympathetic to the problem of housing discrimination, but it has been naturalized, right? This, this supposed difference between black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. So even someone who thinks they're being quoted sympathetically that housing discrimination is a problem is reinforcing the very basic idea by saying that the neighborhood makeup of Chestnut Hill would lead one to believe that there should be a price differential. And so this pervades our understanding uh, of real estate. I'll leave it at that. Get the book, it's all in there. Hi, Julie. Julie's back. 
Hey, Julie's back. <laughs> Questions from the audience. Oh, no. We've long exceeded that. Oh, no. You can take questions. Are there any questions? A couple. Okay. But do buy the book. And there is a discount in the chat. <laughs> so um, we recommend that. I think we're all loving being this fly on the wall in your conversation and really want to come to Taylor dinner. It really is like it's very, it gets very loud and demonstrative. <laughs> yeah, that's, you were talking about, uh, there was one big question, that, uh, a couple of questions I had, but let's listen well, well, to whatever let's the this, audience. Yeah, let's do the, the Let's listen audience. to the audience. Well, let's see what we have time for. Um, there's one from let's, Zach. Let's do one. Okay. So let's try this one from Zach. Can any parallels be drawn between this early 70s era of housing history and the current state of housing in the pandemic? Uh, I mean, the parallel is is that the U.S. has no um, rational policy to deal with the housing needs of poor and working class people. Um, and so there are cheap, quick fixes on the fly um, that you know, try to remain safely ensconced in the market and the logics of the market. And the logics of the, the market are completely uh, at odds with um, the public's welfare and what, you know, we should all see as a right to be housed. I mean, if, if you know, we've decided as a species that uh, shelter is fundamental to uh, the survival and perpetuation of the human race, then why on earth are we charging people uh, for it? And so the lack of uh, coherent policy in dealing with, um, you know, the the vicissitudes of uh, working class life that is then, you know, even more complicated when you factor race, ethnicity, immigrant status, uh, ability, you know, all of that thing, all of those things into it uh, means that, you know, people that when crisis happens, when something, uh, uh, you know, dramatic happens with the economy, um, people experience that in, in uh, the threat of the loss of their housing or the actual loss of their housing um, dramatically. And so, that has that has never changed. I mean, for as long as the process of urbanization has been underway in the United States, um, there has not been uh, a rational policy. My dad writes about the uh, what he describes as the unregulated city um, in the early part of the 20th century. That you know meant that you know people could go and and make a hovel out of something and. Uh, and so there was there was little relative homelessness just because there were no rules uh, regarding how people could house themselves. Um, but, you know, since the 1930s, I mean, there, there has been no rational policy regarding uh, poor and working class uh, people. So I would say that that is the, the tragic uh, parallel between the 1970s and, and today. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of parallel between the two. And I'll just say it in the relationship to the, the, the critical crisis that, that we made around housing insecurity centered around the decision in this country to turn the production of low-income housing over to the private sector. 
And, and so there's a, the, the needs of the, the profit-making needs of the private sector and the public welfare uh, needs are, are, are incompatible. And as long as the private sector has been in charge of housing, which means they're in charge of the production of the rental housing, et cetera, the, the government has stepped aside. So, so we're looking at two things. One is the state believes it has no responsibility to the social security of people down on the ground. And that was particularly true after Nixon created the new federalism, did away with whatever the social contract was and reconstructed our notions of social welfare. What that means in, in, in concrete terms is that if we're in a crisis now where again, social insecurity is there, and at some point, uh, we could be in a situation where large numbers of people are going to be put out of their uh, homes because they did not pay rent during the age of the pandemic. But the crisis flows from the fact that the state allows the private sector to drive the production of low-income housing. The solution is, is that we've got to move housing away from private sector-driven processes. And it, even public housing operates in, in, a, in a private sector framework where they try to use what they call rent rolls, which is just the money that people pay for rent as a way to cover uh, uh, the expenses that they need to do everything else. And in Buffalo, when we took a look at the data, at the lead top of the list of people expelling folks, uh, 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 evicting mm -hmm. people, was the Public Housing Authority. How could the Public Housing Authority lead that? So we've got to move away from notions of the private sector driving the production of low-income housing and truly create social housing inside of the United States. And until we do that, we will continue to have eras of, of, of housing insecurity, uh, people constantly evicted, and the kind of movement, force movement, that creates so much turbulence in the lives of low-income folks. And the work that we're doing, uh, we find that 50, 40, 50, 60% of the people who live in these low-income communities are paying 40, 50, 60% of their income on housing. So imagine this, if you're paying 10% of your income on housing, what it means to be poor suddenly changes. It's not just your income level, but now you have much greater consuming power with that. So yes, there are great parallels between the 70s and the things that are happening now. Um, we do have questions. I feel like you. this has been so wide ranging that you've answered so many of them um, in the course of the conversation. I mean, I know one of the things that is very much on people's minds is that um, the eviction moratoriums that were in place during the pandemic are soon mm -hmm. to end. And that seems like it has the potential to be fairly catastrophic. Um, I don't know, Kang, if you are seeing any um, glimmers of good organizing potentially around that. 
Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, estimates of up to 12 million people um, may potentially uh, face eviction. um, And our government continues to kick the can down the road um, as if that's any uh, solution because the debt just keeps continues to accumulate. Um, You know, people may or may not get new jobs, but uh, that's not going to help you pay five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten uh, months of, of back rent. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, the reason why we have these moratoria in the in the first place, you know, a, a, a substantial part of the, the reason is both because of uh, organizing that has gone on on the on the ground in different localities, but also I think the rebellion of last summer raise the prospect of, you know, the threat of imminent violence um, if, uh, you know, the the state did not intervene uh, in a way to protect people's homes. I know that that was, you know, in Philadelphia where uh, housing activists won uh, a big uh, victory in getting the city to agree uh, to, um, uh, to house more than 100 uh, unhoused people who were uh, participating in an occupation uh, of public property in downtown uh, Philadelphia, that those officials, um, you know, talked about their concern about what it would mean for them to try to evict uh, those unhoused people um, in the the context and the atmosphere uh, of last summer's uh, uprising. Um, and so I think that, you know, it wound the the issues surrounding the pandemic, which exposed the dramatic inequities in American society, the way that the uh, George Floyd uprisings uh, showed how, you know, when race maps onto those existing inequities that Black people's lives are put in the crosshairs, um, you, was the compelling factor uh, that helped to get uh, these uh, moratoria Passed, but now, in addition to that, you know, we need a cancellation uh, of the rent, um, and everyone can think of a million reasons why that uh, that shouldn't happen. But as long as the U.S. government continues to spend almost one trillion dollars a year on the military, we know that the money exists uh, uh, to to satisfy the debt of private landowners um, and allow people to get from under. Uh, from underneath this debt. And I think that this has become uh, a sharp uh, point of organizing, whether it's here in in Philadelphia, um, the uh, Kansas City tenants group uh, have undertaken dramatic actions, uh, gumming up uh, eviction court that, uh, you know, there's, there's a pandemic. So we have eviction court over Zoom. Um, And so they've done, you know, really exemplary work in, uh, you know, gumming up the gears um, uh, that uh, allow for the facilitation of uh, eviction via Zoom. Um, you know, I think that uh, there has been a proliferation of uh, tenant organizations that have formed. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a sound basis for uh, the really the, the creation of a, of a tenant movement. Um, to to place demands and activism around these questions. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. And I would only add that one of the things that, that's clear from race for profits is that the, 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 the movement on the streets, the, the threat of those movements, uh, the organization of, of people does, in fact, have the kind of progressive impact that it needs on public policy. So I, I think... One of the things that has come out of this is that across the country, uh, people are beginning to understand that that the protests, the organization, the struggles are the way that we end up with the cancellation of, of, of rents for all of the reasons that uh, Kianga is named. And as much as people want to say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other, if we look back at race for profit, the thing that incentivized Nixon and the thing that led to, to, to his boldness in setting up the new federalism, uh, resurrecting uh, states' rights, was the fact that he felt that the danger of turbulence in the street, the combustible city, was no longer there. And that allowed him to move boldly on these right-wing policies. So that's the great lesson that, that if we want to fight to make sure that folks are not evicted, then we have to follow the lead that has already been taking place down on the ground. People organizing and getting ready for the battles that are sure to come ahead uh, when these moratoriums wear off. Um, I think that we're at pretty good time, although maybe I could see if you both want to give us some closing thoughts before we end. I, I would like to ask Karen one last Another question, please. Question: The thing I wanted her to kind of share, and, and, and to me, one of the most interesting and amazing things about racial residential segregation, which according to just about everybody's study anywhere, um, outlines all of the negative things that come out of uh, outcomes that occur from these under-resourced, underdevelopment and a development arrested communities. And so even though racial residential segregation is such a known evil. Coming out of the Nixon years, it was kind of uh, made palliative, um, kind of made to be a part of this mm. ethnic homogeneous neighborhoods that was as American as, as apple pie. Mm -hmm. And so even though it exists, the meanness and the wickedness seems to have been exercised. In your view, how is it possible that something so bad, something so detrimental has been made to be okay? It's like the, the song that Whitney Houston said, oh, it's not right. It's uh, but it's okay. How did that happen? Oh my god. Um, I think you know, King, you know, I think King got at this in uh, his book, Where Do We Go From Here? 
Um, and really after the kind of legislative uh, victories around this, the civil rights movement um, had been uh, achieved, you know, because when he was rebuffed in Chicago and essentially failed uh, in Chicago, because he, you know, took his campaign to Chicago in 1966 to break uh, residential segregation um, in the, you know, the quote unquote slums of Chicago and failed miserably. Um, and he said that, you know, it's one thing to just change the law uh, in the South and give people the right to vote. And of course, that was a very difficult struggle and it took a long time. Um, but it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to undo institutional racism, to undo segregation, to undo uh, job discrimination, because then you're talking about a massive redistribution of wealth and resources, and then things get difficult. So all these white liberals um, in that time, you know, who were cheering on the March on Washington and all that, they didn't want black people moving into their neighborhoods. And now, you know, you go to this white neighborhoods and the Black Lives Matter signs everywhere, but please don't enroll your black children in my school. You know, um, you have these white parents who in, you know, in, in somewhere like Chicago, less so here in Philadelphia, but, you know, who think of themselves as the most liberal people on earth who were ready to move heaven and earth. Uh, to get the schools reopened, even though the vast majority of black parents uh, did not want to send their kids back to school because of uh, fear of uh, the, the coronavirus. And these people are like, we don't care about how you feel or what your fears are. We want our white children in school. And so I think that when it comes to ending segregation and all of the maladies that come with it, that those who are in, in, in power don't want to pay for that. You know, they don't want to pay for the expense of undoing uh, the impacts of uh, racial segregation, let alone what it would take uh, to dismantle that. And that includes, you know, for the economic establishment, really the maintenance of this real estate market. What would happen if, you know, you could have uh, black people spoiling the exclusive white neighborhood, you know, then it brings down the cost of, of housing uh, in these white neighborhoods. And so I think that there are deep structural factors that um, are involved in this. And, you know, this is why uh, segregation is just seen as, um, you know, it's almost like a, a, a fact of life. It's been Naturalized. So the thing that I read earlier about, well, of course, you would just expect to pay a higher price in Chestnut Hill compared to Mount Airy, even though it's it's literally the same thing. It's just, you know, a few blocks one way, a few blocks the other way. Uh, it's still it's middle class people. You know, I'm a professor at Princeton. I live in East Mount Airy. I know professors at Princeton who live in Chestnut Hill, and yet the housing in Chestnut Hill is significantly more expensive than it is in 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 this neighborhood. You know, and there was I, I'm just going to read this this one other thing. This was also 
in this article, which I think says something about why this is so hard to dismantle. Part of the challenge of addressing undervaluation is that home buyers often want to live in neighborhoods with people similar to them. So Black people tend to buy in areas that are a majority Black or people of color, neighborhoods where homes are more likely to be undervalued. I mean, it's like, wait, what? You know, like now all of a sudden at the end of this long article about racism and discrimination in real estate, actually black people just want to be in neighborhoods with other black people. And so that's what happens. That's that's how segregation gets re-articulated as just, I don't know, that's just where people want to live. So there's, you know, there's a, a lot. Uh that has to be undone. I guess my my kind of closing thoughts, Julie, would be that I, I think race for profit is one of the most important books of our, our time. Uh, and it's not just because it was written by, by my daughter, um, although I'm glad it was written by my daughter. <laughs> But I, but I think when we look at the challenges that we face as African-Americans move from the old inequality mm-hmm. to the new inequality, in order to continue the struggle to get free, we have to understand the conditionality that we are in at this particular moment in time to understand those, those contradictions. And I think that race for profit clarifies many of the issues and the challenges that we face. So it's one of those few books that allow you to look back to understand how we got here while simultaneously allowing you to gain deep insights into the challenges that we face right now, this uh, hydra-headed challenges. And on the basis of that understanding, be able to see the battles ahead and what we have to do to win them. So I just say, It's a book that everyone ought to not just read, but study. And hopefully that paperback puts it in the hands of lots of folks and lots of people. So for those out there, read the book. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. Agreed. Well, I think I speak for everybody on here when I say we're grateful for letting us be in this conversation with you. Um, it's lovely to watch you and we're excited for the book. Congratulations, Kanga. Thank Um, you. And we hope that all the folks on here find a way to go buy it, read it and study it. Thank you all for being here. Thanks guys. Thanks. It's good to see you again and (laughs) chat with you again, although we do it a lot. (laughs) All right. Bye guys. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. 
And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.